Hello and welcome to our second Rugby Union Grass Half Empty podcast. Um, the magic duo of Jimbo and Jack are back with us after our uh, debut episode where we were so optimistic and our hopes and dreams have been crushed uh, very recently. Um, but so welcome back, guys, and a happy note. <laughs> it's, it's great to be back, mate, after what has been a true roller coaster of emotions for Scottish rugby fans around the world. Um, yeah, I've been, so, uh, yeah, Six Nations, we're going to do preview review uh, in the break, um, what's happened and what we think is going to happen as we go forward. And I think there's no better place to start than Scotland, obviously. And Jimbo, do you want to start with the good or the bad? Uh, <laughs> I felt like there was so much good uh, before that Wales game, and now I'm not sure there's any. Um, yeah, well, let's go chronologically then, right? Let's go England. Let's yeah. go all the way back. And we're, we're preparing ourselves for an absolute pumping. And, yeah, we were. Uh, we were all very uh, depressed. I, I'm not going to lie to you, the boys pulled out a, a storming performance. I think it was a mixture of England not being up to the task, maybe a bit rusty, maybe the injuries, COVID, whatever. No crowd at Twickenham. Everything, I think Jack, you said in the old podcast, that this is probably our best chance to go and get a result in Twickenham because of all these factors. Um, but even all of that, I did not think that we would dominate the game. Like, I don't think I've seen Scotland dominate a game as much as that, even against Italy at times, like possession, territory. Maybe the scoreline doesn't reflect it, but um, I thought it was one of the best performances I've ever seen from a Scotland team defensively, even attacking-wise. I mean, if Finn Russell could kick, that'd be better. Um, so, yeah, Jack, what was your takeaways from that Scotland-England game to start with? Positives, if there's any negatives, and any comments on England? <clears throat> I mean... I think by the last maybe five minutes, it was so rare for someone who's been, you know, emotionally scarred being a Scotland fan over the year to see such a level of control. Um, and I like, you know, you're right. I mentioned it like it's a great chance, but the the mental hold that Twickenham has for Scotland fans is still massive. And I think even playing in an empty stadium, knowing that you're playing England away, was always going to be difficult. Um, you know, <clears throat> Scotland completely grabbed the game by the scruff of the neck and you're right England did look rusty but just the 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 way they went about the performance was they, they all looked like seasoned professionals in what was a, a really young squad um and you know you know we, we talked about like where where maybe England could be hurt and you know they nailed it on the head by the, the variation of the kicking game you know England couldn't get settled you had Elliot Dilly doing laps of the field trying to cover the backfield be it you know little kicks in behind or even the high balls because they spotted Farrell had sat back um, when they were doing kick chase and you know for it was just a bit of a tactical masterclass which I, I don't think I've ever associated a Scotland performance with. <laughs> I know and Jim, I mean the thing uh, I'll get to you in your takes. So the thing that impressed me the most was I thought, like personally, I didn't think Finn Russell had his best game. I thought he was all right. He, he wasn't. He wasn't amazing, and that was the biggest positive that we performed so well. And this narrative of Scotland play well when Finn plays well was kind of shattered a bit because Stuart Hogg was incredible, and the forwards were incredible. I think they dominated most of the scrums, the lineouts. Um, George Turner had a stormer. Even Dave Cherry on his debut came in and kind of dominated the scrum. Uh, 
yeah, just what's your thoughts on the whole, like, Finn maybe not even carrying us for once and we're still playing quite well? Yeah, I think you're exactly right there, Jasm. I think we've had this uh, trend recently where the Scotland team was Finn. And as we all know, Finn has hot and cold days where it, everything seems to go right or everything goes wrong for him. Uh, and we've just been so dependent on that. We've obviously got a kind of core of players that we, we talked about last time that we think are coming up. You've got the Hamish Watsons, the Richies, the kind of, it's, it's a good squad now. Uh, but the key difference this year seems to really be that Finn doesn't have to run the show for us. I think Stuart Hogg's really coming into his own as a captain for the side. You see him stepping up at first receiver, which we've always known he's good at, at fullback, but that takes a bit of uh, weight off Finn's shoulders. Um, Ali Price, I think, is having a great tournament. Uh, I'm sure we'll talk about his kicking when we talk about the Wales game, but I personally don't miss Greg Laidlaw. I think we've got more pace and uh, dynamism at the nine position. Uh, I think you hit nail on the head, really. Finn Russell had an OK game. It wasn't a bad game didn't throw any stupid interceptions but he wasn't dominant and we still managed to get the win yeah i mean that's the thing jack so uh, james will know this because we both did around the nfl podcast they have this thing called the p skill when scotland kicked it into the corner with three minutes left on a scale of one to ten ten being wetting yourself and one being bone dry how much were you wetting yourself about scotland bottling that <laughs> I can't even begin to describe the, the, the volume of fluids that had left my body for that, that sheer moment of horror, that whole, you know, 38 years, even though I wasn't alive for 12 of them, you know, coming back to haunt us in that moment. Um, oh, it was it was terrifying, genuinely terrifying. Um, well, one thing I want to touch on, on, you know, your point about Russell quickly is just, I think it just shows what it's when you have a world-class player playing at 10, what a difference it makes because you saw England trying to target him. You saw like Curry jumping out the line and stuff like that, trying to hit him. But he just, he just pulls like so much of the attention away from the other guys. So you had like, you know, Cam Redpath in there who's starting on what, I mean, what a debut to come, you know, to Twickenham and, and overturn a, a huge, def, uh, a huge sort of um, what streak of losses against England. But like he got so much more time on the ball because everyone just wanted to, you know, go and smash Finn. And yeah, um, I don't know why I digress, but yes, to go back to your point, um, yeah, I was covered in piss, like most people. <laughs> yeah, it, it was honestly just yeah, Finn going for the bold drop goal to try and get them out the bonus point, which that was I love, I love the call, but it was a dreadful, dreadful attempt. Um, from an England point of view, Jimbo. I, is is it just do you think it was just rust all the issues they had do you think there's a deep line flaw because obviously i mean we can move on to the italy game they had as well just because it's a nice segue they didn't look that impressive against italy either i know they ended up winning quite comfortably in the end i think it's 42 18 um but italy scored with quite like ease in the first three minutes really yeah um and it was more italy being Italy that lost in the game than England winning the game. Like it wasn't like a yeah the scoreline flattered them. Yeah, it, it's cool. If you, what I'm trying to say is like last year England lost to France and then pumped everyone apart from the horrible game in Murrayfield where you can do anything. Um, they hammered everyone. Whereas this year it just doesn't seem to have that same kind of England going forward, flooding forward. You know, just dominating games. I know it's only been two games and they might go and win the next three comfortably. But is there like an underlying problem, do you think, or is it just a bit of rust? Uh, I, just going back to the Scotland-England game, I kind of left the game 
on first watching it, thinking that England had played badly rather than Scotland well. Then kind of on second viewing, I changed my mind. I think Scotland really dominated and the scoreline just didn't uh, flatter them. And I think England did have a bad game um, as well. Uh, I guess ultimately what you're getting at really is, is Eddie Jones the right man for the job or is is he going to bottle it again? I think England are significantly better under Eddie Jones than they were under Lancaster before him. I think they've got a kind of uh, exciting attacking players. Uh, but I do think the key for me is I still don't see Farrell as a 10. And I think they need someone like, a, I mean, George Ford in the current setup or someone like Simmons at Exeter is just tearing it up to have that much more going forward. I think Farrell's just a, kind of a bit of a brute that I would I would personally play at 12 if I was coaching England. Yeah, do you know, I think, Jack, that their play style is kind of quite, uh, kind of dull, but also uh, like they're so heavily reliant on the kicking game. Um, and it, against Scotland, it just fell apart, would you not say? And I don't really... that is that Eddie Jones? Is that just how England have always played? Is that... Like, yeah. Um, I mean... Um, I mean, first of all, Jimbo, that's um, that's Joe Simmons' MBE, uh, because apparently people just get MBEs for fucking anything these days, doing their job uh, to whatever standard. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I think there, there's quite a few factors for that England game. One, you know, Scotland conceded six penalties in that whole game. That is unbelievable. In a place where, you know, England are used to, you know, dominating and you know, build their game around, you know, this pressure. You know, England came with the expectation Scotland would make a lot of mistakes and they would capitalise on that. You look at how international rugby has been in the last year and it's a game of, you know, we don't want the ball, give the ball to the opposition, pressure them, make a mistake, grind a penalty because that's the best way to get up the field. Now, what Scotland did was they just eliminated the mistakes and then put that on England by targeting where England's kicking game was going wrong with leaving Farrell in the backfield where he was going up against Shawnee Maitland, who, you know, was apparently going to be one of these undercooked Saris boys who ended up having an absolute stormer um, or, you know, just like death kicks in behind and pushing left footed Elliot Daly onto, you know, the touchline so he couldn't kick it away or he'd kick it onto, you know, Hogg who's back in, you know, the form of his life. Um, I just think generally it was just, you know, I think a lot of people, and I'm the same as you, James, I think a lot of people are taken away from the fact it was just a very good performance and England don't know how to chase a game. They, like, you know, apart from, you know, two minutes in against Italy, England normally <laughs> get a, a massive lead and then they go try and break through our white wall of defence and, you know, <clears throat> Scotland, you know, beat them to it and you could see sort of England's attack like it's been highlighted in a few horrible screenshots of where you've got like seven on threes and stuff but England's attack just didn't look like they knew how to penetrate Scotland's defence um, and they didn't really know how they were going to do it um, I mean yeah. everything everything you guys both have said is completely true and it, it makes what happened seven days later even worse because <laughs> everything that Scotland did right against England who are probably one of the best sides in the world right now you'd say and then you come up against a really depleted Welsh team. Um, and we talked about it before. We're like, Wales probably will finish fifth in our predictions at the start of the year. Um, and as you said, like we conceded six penalties in the whole game against England. And then I think in the first 12 minutes, we conceded six penalties against Wales. Like it was, it was just a complete opposite. Is that Scotland getting ahead of themselves a bit? Or is that Wales' game plan that kind of caused those mistakes? Because, I mean... 
the pack that was so good, the forwards were incredible against England, they kind of gave away stupid penalties. It was, I mean, obviously, Ferguson's the one you can look at. Um, but, um, um, but yeah, Ferguson's the one you can look at, he got sent off, okay? We can talk about that in another minute. But, I mean, Gary Graham was giving away, like, stupid fouls. Like, it was just a pack in general. And I genuinely don't think Wales had to work hard for their points. I think they kind of... Scotland just gave them territory. Like they could just, as you say, play that percentage game where get a penalty, kick it in the corner, get a penalty, kick it in the corner, and then from there you're pretty much guaranteed three points. I think I've got a stat here where I think Wales scored every time they entered the Scottish 22. They scored some sort of points, and that's like that's just not good enough, right? Like you can't do that international rugby, Jack. Yeah. Or James, what are you? <laughs> yeah, no, I definitely agree. Um, you just can't. It was it was a shameful performance, really, um, and I just think we we gave them too many opportunities to get back into the game, uh, and just didn't didn't close it out. And, and as you said, the pack just too many penalties. And as you said, we can get onto Xander separately, but it it just wasn't wasn't good enough, really. Yeah, Jack. So is that like did Wales make Scotland make those mistakes, or was that just a Scottish just? being Scotland, <laughs> the life of a Scotland fan, just seven days apart, two completely different performances. Yeah, um, I, I, I think it would be, it's, it's saying a lot to say that Wales pushed that on Scotland. I think there was some really cruel lessons in international rugby there for Scotland, which first and foremost disciplines King right now. Um, and second of all, adapting to the referee, you know, Andrew Brace was a lot tougher at the breakdown than than Matt Carley was, um, you know, whereas <clears throat> yeah, I, I just think they, they were stupid because, you know, the way Scotland's defence sets up is they're really passive um, and they, they just won't let you get around them. So you can make pretty like, you know, small increments in the middle of the park. But like when you get to the goal line, like that Scotland team looks like it's quite easy to break through. Whereas you don't see that when you, you know you go France or Wales or Ireland, they all look a lot tougher, you know, on the goal line than we do. And you know Wales weren't getting anywhere in the middle of the park against our defence, but it's just you know the stupid opportunities just let them kick into the 22 where they really hurt us, as you touched on. Um, and it just shows like how important, like you know, discipline's the most important aspect of the game right now. Yeah, um, I mean, and we, we lost. I, I, we, we're talking about discipline, James. Uh, let's move on to this tackle from Xander Ferguson. So, I'll I'll get your take on it first. Did you think it was a yellow? Did you think it was a red? Do you think it was nothing? What what was your take on it? Uh, to be honest, in the moment, I was outraged. It looked nothing like uh, Omani's from the week before. Um, I felt like he he tried to wrap his arm in as you should in a clear out. It wasn't it wasn't a shoulder charge. Um, I think the short answer is it's definitely a yellow. He did make contact with the head. Okay. But I think there are enough mitigating circumstances in that he was trying to get low. The guy moved down to his level. And I think it was ultimately a legal clear out because he was trying to bind onto the ruck. The, the law book's clear. You're not allowed to charge into a ruck without binding. But this is where ultimately he didn't bind, but it was because the the player was moved. Whereas if you look at Omani, he just ran in with his shoulder, kind of trying to hit the guy in as hard as he could. So I think they're two different inc- uh, incidents, really. Uh, although I have seen like uh, Gavin Chapman on Twitter, someone who uh, rugby opinion I greatly trust, 
is convinced that it was a red card and that kind of like the arm shouldn't be considered in these matters. It was a, it was a contact of the head. So he, even though he's an average Scotland fan, doesn't think the appeal should be successful. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of going to trust his opinion. But as <laughs> a fan in the moment, I was outraged and thought it should have been a yellow, but not red. Yeah, I mean, uh, regardless, Jack, the, like, you know the rules. Why are you like? Why are you doing that? Why do you think you'll run up and going into the head? I know, like, at the moment and stuff, but even if it's a yellow, ten minutes is uh, it costs you big. And and I mean, Wales scored the try to win the game, which I think is genuinely because we were down to fourteen men. They had an overload. Uh, Hoggy had to come up to cover the wing, and it was just an easy chip through um, for the for the try. Um, but yeah, I'm guessing you stand with Jim Moon in the in the yellow, or do you think it's more of a red in your eyes? I mean, I was the exact same as Jimbo at the time. I was like, you know, screaming at the TV, thinking that's wrong. And I, I personally am not the biggest fan of Matt Carley. Um, and <clears throat> you know, I the the they made the laws have been made to, like to keep player safety at paramount and there's been lots of big changes around you know any head contact being like a very little mitigation factor in a red card and by that letter of the law he did hit him in the head and it's dangerous but my main concern is that there's an identical incident that happened in november for the scotland Ireland game in the, the autumn nations cup which you know didn't even bat an eyelid guess who the referee was it was Matt Carley again now obviously there's changes in there but like I, the thing that really pissed me off was more that you've got a TMO there who's suggesting it's a yellow card and you've got a referee who's, who's like adamant it's a red a red card in my view is an, like an irrevocable thing you can do on the field like it will completely change the game I if there's any glimmer of you know uncertainty then surely that has to be like contested and you can't just jump to a red card because you could always like suspend someone later um but i just feel like it was a it was a huge moment in the game jimbo what do you what do you think yeah i was just gonna throw in there this i get you you talking about kind of a previous game with ireland and the same referee the one thing i would say is it's clear that the referees have decided they want to pick up on this part of the game um if you look at the premiership, the kind of weekend after the Six Nations, I think it was something like four red cards, three of which were f- for similar incidents. So it's clearly a hot topic at the moment in rugby is this kind of aggressive clear out where you basically don't bind on and hit them as hard as you can and basically aim for the head. So I do think it's one of those things that clearly the referees are hot on at the moment as they're trying to get it out of the game. And to be clear, I don't think it should be in the game. But I just don't think, by the letter of the law, what Matt Fagerson did was a red. Yeah. I mean, we could argue this. It's happened. It was stupid. Yeah. Probably cost caught in the game. And our best chance of probably getting the Grand Slam or a Six Nations title, I'd say. Um, Especially with what's going on just now. So we'll move on. Actually, we'll talk about the other games before we go back to this when we preview. So let's move on away from Scotland for a bit. Um... Wales are probably the worst 2-0 side in the history of the championship. Anyone would want to disagree with me? <laughs> I mean, it was either going to be Scotland or Wales in that night. So, yeah, probably. probably I mean, this, yeah, it's, they've played 30 on 28, right, in the two games. So, um, yeah, with it. a winning margin of what, like four points? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, it's when yeah, they, it's if they get the Grand Slam and then Red Card is player of the tournament. <laughs> yeah, they're honestly, yeah, it's 
depressing uh, just how poor they are, not how they're 2 0. But what I wanted to touch on was to so move on to Ireland. And I think before the, when we recorded the last one, we were kind of all a, bit, a little bit down in Ireland. We thought they were kind of in this rebuild phase. It's still Ireland, obviously, but they've got the, like Johnny Sexton's kind of over the hill and all these kind of things. Um, I, I know they're 0 2, but I've been very impressed by how they've gone about things. And I think they've. Obviously, the Welsh game, they were down to 14 men for most of it, and they only lost by, like I think, less than a score. Was it three points or something, or four points? I can't, I can't quite remember. Uh, and then France, who we all regard as probably the favourites for the tournament and one of the best sides in the world, they gave them a really good run. I think, again, it was within two points at home. And obviously, France were delighted because they've broken the curse of uh, playing in Ireland and stuff, but there's no fans again. Um, and Ireland are quite depleted right now. So... Is that me just looking at it from a different point of view of thinking that even though they're 0-2, they're, they're going to be a very, very tough game for Scotland? Because just the way they've performed, I think, they've been very solid. Jack? Um, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, so that Ireland team, I think, flatters to deceive. I think they do, they, they historically have had a very strong set piece and, you know, they, they can be pretty ferocious defensively. But like they're not putting up the points. Like you know, uh, you know that they spent a lot of time in that France game in, in France's 22, and they came away with very few points in real terms. Um, and you know, <clears throat> you know, we can talk about like them being good, but you know, as a Scotland fan who for years was told like you know, oh, you can play good rugby for like 20 minutes, but at the end of the day, the only thing that matters is getting the win. Um, they're that squad is too good to for them to you know to not get better at that and they've got you know you know i'm not convinced by andy farrell as a head coach but they've got you know paul o'connell you know a defensive coach so they're going to continue to be probably a very ferocious defensive team um ireland will always be a tough game for scotland like there's no doubt about it they're they know the players so well and you know you see that whenever scotland and ireland and and wales play each other they're like you know these guys are playing against each other week in week out they 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 know each other's games pretty well and also i think there's just the general belief there's a there's a general battle blood between the two of them because of you know incidents have happened with glasgow and monster historically and you know a few you know odd well controversial comments on rte and stuff like that but, <laughs> <clears throat> you know, I, I there's 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 you can't have four provinces playing you know really high standard of rugby, destroying the rest of the league without having like without some of that coming through to the national team, and like yeah. they they gen they believe they're a much better team than Scotland, and you know it will be it will be a very tough game. Right? Yeah, uh, team. With, um, one of the one of the Instagram questions we got, James, was one of the Irish guys saying, do you think Andy Farrell's kind of uh, stealing a living at the moment, still basically living off the previous regime and he's not actually changed much, he's kind of kind of, kind of coasting along is that is that harsh criticism of him or is that fair? I think in general, the, the jury's still out, I think maybe similar to the debate we had last time about Gregor taking over from Vern. He was given a very solid base to take over from. It's not, it's not like these kind of football manager changes where you come in and the, the team's fallen apart, which it, you don't see that that much, particularly at international rugby. Uh, like Schmidt retired out of kind of his own choice. Uh, 
the Ireland team are all very good. And I think the issue is, to be fair to Farrell, is he inherited an ageing squad, right? So he's got to bring in the, the new blood and, and set up a system that will work for these new players. I don't think he's changed much. I don't think he really needed to change much. I think the bigger squad, the bigger problem Ireland have is really replacing the likes of um, of Sexton and, and Murray, etc. Um, and I think the jury's still out, really. Uh, I, I don't dislike him as a coach, but equally, I don't know if he's done enough to prove he can handle it at this level. Yeah, that's. Yeah, I think that's what most people are questioning right now, is especially with that. As you said, you, you don't really get like the football scenarios, but this is quite close to a football where like a manager leaves an aging squad, things like think of like Sir Alex Ferguson leaving Man United with David Moyes coming in, and it's uh, David Moyes was an established manager, and he still obviously find it really tough. Andy Fowles not really had that much experience, as you said, and he's coming to a job which is right up there with one of the toughest ones right now, with, as you said, the team performing at such an elite level for so long, um, beating New Zealand, like ending their streak, um, doing pretty well at the World Cup, uh, consistently being one of the best teams in the Six Nations, to now a new manager, all those old reliable heads gone, you have to bring through new people. Could you see a, a period in Irish rugby being a bit... Not to say bleak, like it's not going to be bleak. Like as you said, like all four provinces dominate the, the Pro 14. Um, but do you think it'll be a time where they're going to live it with the, the mediocres like Scotland for a, for a few years? Um, I, I I don't think they're they I think they're a few light years off that sort of that sort of horrible back in the doldrum stage that we've been through. Um, you know, I think the biggest thing for Ireland right now is you know. Yeah, as Jimbo mentioned, you've got these these sort of totemic players, but they've really developed a, a style of play internationally that hasn't changed for a long time. Whereas a lot of the players that they've got coming through, so you talk about like um, Ryan Baird, who's the young second row coming through, or you know um, <clears throat> you've got a couple of guys like Michael Lowry, uh, um, Ulster, Craig Casey at Munster, Gavin Coombs at Munster. These guys are playing a much more ex- like expansive and much more athletic self game rather than you know just trying to steamroller teams and you know like you know that's sort of the Irish style right now is trying to make a team you know tackle like 250 times a game and tire the crap out of them and then walk over the the, the remains of the, of the team's bodies in front of them and I I think that, like the biggest struggle for them is like how do they incorporate all these expansive and you know really lively and enjoyable players into an international rugby game where you don't get the time or the the space and you have to be a lot more patient but you know Munster and Leinster are two unbelievable outfits the production lines are phenomenal like off the charts and like there's probably no better breeding ground in Europe really for like getting some like battle hardened you know guys who can make a step up to international rugby. So, yeah, well, here's, yeah. here's the question for both of you guys, because obviously Wales and Ireland are coming through a bit of a transition period right now, and Scotland have been in a transition period for the past 25 years. So um, for, I'll go to James first and Jack. In three, four years' time, give me an order of Wales, Scotland, Ireland, who you think is going to prov- get the best talent out um, and be maybe performing at a higher level so like if you can rank the three one two three in your opinion uh, ireland wales scotland you think i just made my arguments from last week last time we talked hold like the the lack of pro team depth in scotland just means i don't think we're ever going to compete with those guys um on a consistent basis 
Now, maybe you, the time frame you chose maybe is interesting because three to four years, maybe some of our kind of like kind of current generation are still at their prime. We've got some new long, young lads and some South Africans who will probably have qualified for residency by then. <laughs> like that's that's our policy. But I just ultimately think, as you mentioned, Ireland's provinces are just so good. I think they're going to keep being at the top. I think Wales are going to slowly trend down closer to uh, our level. Um, I think it's going to be a closer gap, but I don't think it's us going up. I think it's them coming, them coming down. Yeah. What about you, Jack? Same for you. Uh, yeah, I, I agree with Jim. I think I think Ireland will be streets ahead of of the other Celtic teams for a while. Um, and I, but I don't think Wales will be much higher than Scotland. Um, I think there's a there's a lot of you know internal bureaucracy with the Welsh nation, or the Welsh regions, um, and their funding concerns. Um, and I just, I just think there's always going to be that pool which hits Wales harder because they have to like fund four different teams of players trying to go away and earn more money and them keeping like you know tighter squads and helping progression go through. Whereas I think in Scotland they've done a lot of grassroots investment and you know they're trying to set up for the future. You see the spending that Scotland have been doing, um, and you know it's close to what the IRF, IRFRU are doing. IRFU. I can't spell apparently, but yeah, you know what I mean. So, like, and one I thing I, I would add is that I don't think that the Welsh model is better than the Scottish model necessarily. I think as Jack's getting to there, like they're really stretched too thin with their four pro teams. I don't, and like I think I can't remember. It's Ospreys nearly went bankrupt and all this sort of stuff. They're kind of yeah. clinging on to having these four teams. I don't think that the SRU should suddenly try and get there, but I do think that the natural player depth it gives them is good. And I, as Jack says, it's kind of like maybe they lose out on the top quality because of being stretched too thin. So yeah. I'm not saying that we need to go that way. It's just I think that's a reason in the next three to four years why they'll still be better. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, let's quickly move on to France. And I think last time we just literally said Dupont was class and moved on. Um, so, uh, I mean, that still holds because he's, he's been unreal. Um, but yeah, um, what's your guys' take? So, like, obviously they um, they won a tight game against Ireland. Um, Dupont had a, a stormer against Italy. Um, and the thing that really pr- like showed me what this Fran- France team's made of is I think when they were down to 14 men against Ireland and they scored that really well with a try um, to basically, I know Ireland was still within a shot, but that basically took the game away from Ireland, in my opinion. Um, and just their defence in the midfield was, it's just, it's like a blue wall. Like you, like you just can't get through them. I think it was LaRue who got binned um, and they scored after that in that little like 10 minute yellow period. And yeah, I mean, Jack, Anything to add apart from Dupont is class because we did we covered that last time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're, I think you're right. You the the worrying thing for every other team is that French team under the cosh still held very very firm. Um, you know, <clears throat> they've they've cleared like Sean Edwards is by far. I think we touched on this last time. But he's just by far the best bit of business that anyone's done in the Six Nations for a long time. You know, you've got a guy called, you got Gail Fiku who burst onto the scene as sort of this like seen as this kind of hot and cold sort of centre who could be very explosive, and he's now the defensive captain. And you know, he put in one hell of a cover tackle in the first half. Um, but you know, if France weren't very impressive, but ground out a win, and you know, and the Viva Stadium is always going to be a tough place to go. Um, they 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 were they were brilliant, and you know, they've just got so many dimensions to their game. You know, they they they're so they got unbelievably potent wingers um 
you know, it's quite rare. You d- we barely even mentioned. I didn't really mention Jalibar all game when I was looking at. It. And you know, how often do you see that with you know an international team that you don't talk about their ten that much? But you know, <clears throat> they've got a wonderful pack, unbelievably like talented wingers and finishers in that team, but still can like sort of do the hard yards of international rugby rather than just you know losing out in tough conditions. And yeah, they were phenomenal. And God help whoever they face next. Uh, it's a question for you, James. Do you think, uh, do you remember the French pack from about six, seven, eight years ago? Uh, Thierry Doucetois and, uh, oh my God, I forgot, I forgot the name of the other two. They were literally, come on, help me out, lads. Like Aaron Ordeke. Yeah, Aaron Ordeke. And who was you the last one? Chabelle? Or... <laughs> well, he was the second one, right? Yeah. Um, and my point is, do you think that pack, when they had those, that pack was incredible. That was what the French team was kind of built on uh, back then. And Banson Claire just pumping everyone on the wing. Um do you think this team is more of a well-rounded team than that one in a sense that it's more... That team was a lot of individuals, I felt, that kind of came together. And, I mean, they got to a World Cup final. They got close to beating New Zealand. Um, so you can't just say they were, they, they were just a bunch of individuals. But I've, it just feels like this team, when you watch them, they may not be as good individually in certain positions, but just just work really well together. Yeah, I think you're right. France have kind of famously had this kind of rugby culture problem where it's like kind of the as you say individuals not a team um and some of that's probably just british racism but like like andy good on the rugby pod just <laughs> going off about the french cowboys but i do think that the kind of uh you're right the national setup seems to have changed um and i don't know if that's just like their their under 20s team has been shredding it for years so they're obviously that was going to start coming through um i think they've probably just invested for long enough that it does look like this is the kind of start of where we thought france should be but ultimately i mean they've not won it yet um they still need to prove themselves but as we all know dupont like could just play by himself and he'd win so Glad yeah. he's got COVID, to be honest. I know, well, you, you, it's a good transition, so let's let's move on. Let's look, at, look ahead, and Scotland play France, obviously. Well, um, from the recording of this podcast, Scotland are playing France this weekend. Um, we don't know if, if it goes ahead or not, and they've got... Yes, go on, James. Yeah, the, the, the announcement's due to be made tomorrow, so when okay. people are listening, they will know. They will know. So you'll know that we're either talking absolute garbage for the next three, four minutes, or we're not. So you can just forward the next four minutes if you want, if uh, France aren't playing Scotland. Um. Jack, uh, they're missing, I think it's a 10 starters, I think I saw, because of COVID. Um, to start with, do you think the game will go ahead? And if it does, do you think Scotland can beat their under-20s? <laughs> <laughs> oh, two, two excellent questions. Um, <clears throat> I I think the game will... Uh, I'm very confident the game's going to go ahead. Um, <clears throat> I, I, I presume you probably saw today... or was it today yet yeah, Scottish rugby's punchy statement to suggest that like, you know, we're not taking a postponing because that's going to break some of the, the contracts for a lot of Scotland's um, XL players. And they're going to go back um, to their clubs and Scotland's going to be hindered. Now, <clears throat> the, this, this is, this is France's problem really, you know, it's their own COVID bubble breach. And unfortunately the way a cookie crumbles is they need to play this fixture out. Now they've got a full squad who haven't registered a test or like haven't registered a, a positive test still in that thirty one they've revised down to. So I think it is gonna go ahead. Um but more importantly on to question two, 
I mean, <clears throat> I I think you know when in the Autumn Nations Cup when France said that only th- like you know we are we're not releasing our best players for that the final against England and everyone was like oh for God's sake we're gonna watch England triumphantly destroy a group of under twenty like French you know graduates effectively. And then they put in like an unbelievable performance. I think that was, you know, amazing to watch from, you know, from not supporting anyone, but also fucking terrifying for being, you know, any team who's like, you know, maybe Scotland could win if England have a few injuries against us and blah, blah, blah. And then you've got France's, you know, kids going out and doing an unbelievable job. (laughs) Like, I think you'll be so, you'd be foolish to underestimate how good this team is. And, you know, that's, you know, not taken away from like half the guys they've got in there are still, you know, like unbelievable players. They've still got the most of their core of their starting team against Ireland. You know, obviously losing their captain, Olive On's going to be a big loss. Um, losing Doolan at fullback, who I thought played really well. But, you know, they've brought in Thomas Ramos, who two years ago tore Scotland to pieces in Paris. You know, they're bringing in quality and they've still got a world class squad, you know. It's going to be one difficult game for Scotland. Yeah. But again, uh, you're not going to get a better chance to be yeah, exactly. another. You're not going to be a, get a better chance. Let's see if third uh, time's charm. Jimbo, uh, obviously Scotland's squad got released and stuff. So Josh Bales has been added um, to the squad with Batty, Dupreeze, Johnson, Harley, and the scrum half, uh, Dobby. Dobby? Yeah, yeah. Jimmy Dobby. Um, one, what do you make of the, make of the additions? Um and the second thing for me is, do you think Dobie squeezes his way into the bench somehow? Yeah, I, I guess it's been Scott Steele in the first two matches. And yeah. I think at the everyone kind of thought George Horn would be clearly the second choice. I think he's still injured, although I think he may be coming back. Um, uh, but uh, the really the second nine shirt is up for anyone, so he could get there. Um, I don't think Scott Steele's like done enough off the bench to definitely deserve that shot, and maybe it's time to to see what the young lad can do in the Scotland jersey. I've heard he's tearing up trees. Um, I haven't seen much of his game gameplay myself. The other ones, I get, I have no idea what Rob Harley's doing near an international squad. <laughs> um, like he's like worse than Ryan Wilson, and that's saying something if you know my opinions about Ryan Wilson. Um, but uh, clearly, uh, Gregor wants to like toughen up some of the wee lads, maybe. Um, but yeah, I don't think he's getting a look in. And then uh, Bayless is the interesting one. Seems to be another kind of coup for the English-based SRU scouts, having found uh, another lad who's uh, eligible. Um, again, don't know much about him. I've heard he's pretty good for Bath, but doesn't get necessarily near their starting team that often. But when he does, he plays well. I yeah. mean, it's the sort of thing that he's probably so far removed from an England shirt. I don't think we should like rush to cap him just to stop them getting him. Yeah. But it's good to know he's quite young. He's only 23. So for yeah. back and forward, that's that's pretty young to to get called up. With the Jack, with the the one thing I had in my notes actually that I didn't mention earlier, and I I don't know how he's still in the squad as Jim as Lang. Like I I, I just it, he's the epitome of bang average. Like and I generally forgot he was been playing for half the game. Like obviously my love for Matt Scott and Mark Bennett comes out again, but how is this man in the squad? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean. Oh, I feel p- p- poor James Lang is probably, you know, he's just signed a deal for Edinburgh. You know, he's probably really excited to come off and like <laughs> really kick on with his life. And like he's like, 
there's just such there's such a strong opinion of him already of here because you know people like well <clears throat> they haven't been overly impressed he clearly fits Townsend's mold of he Townsend's clearly desperate for us a defensively solid 10 who can also distribute the ball well I know you're immediately going to say what about that Scott but you know <laughs> I guess James Lang has he's probably got a bit more experience recently of like distributing because you know he, he chops and changes at 10 for for harlequins when uh, marcus smith goes off but you know i, I think he's probably going to start on on the weekend he's going to start oh my yeah. oh yeah of course it's red path <clears throat> injured isn't he yeah with red path out um you know taylor's obviously come back to finish but i think you know he'll probably want to get you know, if you get Lang in the game, then that opens up, you know, the ability to get the ball to Van der Merwe, Hogg, Graham or Maitland, whoever plays, you know. Um, yeah, it's an interesting one. I mean, like, I'd like to think that he doesn't see the light of day for Scotland once back. <laughs> Have we gone in two weeks from saying we've got such a deep centre position to having James Lang starting for us against France? Oh, it, it always has the ebb and flow though doesn't it like it's always like we have an unbelievable depth and then either like, we are scraping the barrel they never see there's like injuries coming the droves for Scottish Sunday. um yeah i mean we need to, we need to move on because we've been trying for a bit so i'm going to get your predictions to the end of the tournament um obviously we had we made our predictions at the start with finishing positions and i think you both went some form of france england Ireland third? Uh, maybe one of you went Scotland third. I think Jack probably went third Scotland. Um, any changes to that, lads? <laughs> Jimbo, you can have first names. Uh, it's Francis to lose now, even with COVID, I think. Um, uh, but, yeah, I don't know. I haven't really thought out the permutations. People keep kind of saying that Scotland's lost to Wales, like, hands it to England to make them have a fighting chance. I don't quite understand that. I see Scotland coming second, though. Oh, oof. bold take. I, I I was trying to like crunch the numbers and like look at like the the permutations, and I have a horrible feeling Scotland are going to slide back into fourth somehow with like with three wins, and I just don't understand how. Um, <clears throat> but like yeah, I I'm worried because I think England have got a fair chance to win it now because I think Scotland will win in France. Do you think do you think it would be the most Scottish thing ever if we win two games against England and France and lose to Italy, Wales and Ireland? And that would genuinely be the most Scottish no, thing. I think ever. the most Scottish thing ever would be to beat England but they still win the tournament. <laughs> <laughs> um well anyway, like good review and preview and it has been an interesting situation, it's not gonna lie. It's been one that's been more open than usual, I feel. And uh, the saying anyone can beat anyone, especially when COVID's about, does make it very interesting as we go on. So let's move on to the debate section. And this week's topics, chosen by your lovely selves, actually, are very good ones. Um, who wants who wants to go first? Who's who's feeling hot? No one. <laughs> Jimbo Jimbo wants to go first. James, introduce your topic and make your case for it, sir. Uh, can you introduce my topic so I get the wording right? Uh, down. Uh, well. Is it, no. I it. I, I, okay, I'll tell you what I'm going to talk about, and then you can tell me yeah. I'm going to talk about scrums, and if if there's still, uh, I'm going to basically ca- caption it under: Is there still uh, space for scrums in the game? Yeah. Um, the basic message here that I need to clarify is that I am, or when I played, I was a prop forward, and 
I will always want scrums in the game. So there is a natural bias coming into this. So what I'm really looking at is do, do the scrums need to change significantly? So I've done a little bit of digging, not as much as maybe I would have liked for some data on this one. And I think the key thing to think about is like, why would you challenge what the what scrums and their place in the game? And why would a kind of impartial viewer of the sport be like, that's so stupid, that needs to go. And the main downside of a scrum is obviously how much of the game they take up and what and what they like kind of don't bring to the to the sport. I, I think I, the stats I found is for Six Nations 2020, the, the active time played in games for last year's tournament was 37 minutes. So out of 80-minute games, the ball was in play for only 37 minutes. Now, obviously, the 43 minutes that are missing there are not all scrums. That's including kind of the minute it can take someone to take a kick, line outs, etc. It was hard to get the kind of data on how much of that time was taken up by scrums. But let's assume even if it's only a quarter of that and it's kind of 10 minutes of gameplay on average, that is just like utterly outrageous for ultimately just watching kind of people stand up and try and push each other. Um, is it actually a kind of spectacle for the fan anymore? Uh, some data I had going back further from uh, Wales Online, that dubious source, but from the 2016 tournament kind of confirms the same thing, right? It says the average uh, over the Six Nations, there were 241 minutes lost to scrums. Which is 20% of the of playing time taken up by scrums and scrum resets, and I just don't think that's the intent behind what the scrums were meant to be there for. If you think about the premise of what a scrum does, it brings eight of the well, eight players from each team into one point on the pitch and basically opens up play. So the first phase or two outside of a scrum, let's say, kind of ignore the fact that flankers are super fast nowadays, is it effectively making it like a sevens game? You've got the backs with space. It's what everyone wants to watch, fun, flowing, attacking rugby. Um, and that's what the scrum is meant to be there to do. And you can argue it does because 12.2% of tries during last year's Six Nations originated from a scrum. So within kind of six phases of a scrum, there were that, that created like near over 10% of the tournament's tries. So they, they still do that job. The problem is how much time they take to take up in doing so. Um, I'm, I'm not getting into the safety aspect here. I like. I think it's a given that the world rugby rule changes over the last kind of decade or, or decade plus, getting rid of the the, the big impact, bringing in uh, crouch uh, set bind etc. Um, are are much much better for safety. And I think collapsing scrums is always going to be a problem. You could get rid of it by kind of really penalizing kind of the sort of binding that goes on. But ultimately, you don't want to get rid of the dark arts, uh, which I'm a big fan of. Martin Kemp taught me well uh, with, with that in uh, from a scrummaging perspective. Um, and I guess the re reason I think that you need to keep some form of scrummaging is that I think for personally, it's the appeal of rugby. Rugby is designed around hosting a number of physiques, a number of body types, kind of like the big men in the NFL. It's the same thing. You want to be able to have your WP Nels, like what chance would he have to be a professional athlete in, <laughs> like, in most sports? Like you need to be big and fast to be a good prop forward in today's game. Whereas if you were just big, he'd be relatively slow. Um, uh, <laughs> so I think rugby is like, let's, I'm not going to get into the transgender debate here. Rugby is, <laughs> the whole pretty inclusive as sports go like 
football doesn't encourage that sort of kind of diversity in uh, player, that, that's why you want the scrums and lineups to exist. So they need to exist in the game because they help attacking one and two, they help make rugby more inclusive. But the problem is that they take up too much time, uh, like 20% of game time. So the clear, clear solution here is keep scrums in the game, keep it as a physical battle, because ultimately all of rugby is a physical battle. We don't want to take that away from people, but make it that it, the clock is stopped until the ball comes out the back. I think it would encourage, at the moment, let's be honest, teams milk the penalties and milk collapsing them because it can give themselves a rest when they're on a yellow card situation, etc. Gets rid of that and then uh, also means that we have more time to watch fun attacking rugby that we want. I mean, I, so I'll let Jack have a go at this a second. My only thing with that is you just said that you lose so much time and it kind of comes to the biggest stigma that people have with the NFL, for instance, is it's too stop-start, it's too... It takes too long, right? So the actual NFL game is an hour long, but it's actually three hours of real time because the clock stops so much. Would that not take away from rugby in a sense that you you go there, you watch 80 minutes rugby, uh, 15 minutes halftime, an hour, two hours max, and you're out of there kind of thing. And if you add this thing for stop-start, that's an extra half an hour maybe added on. Um, do you see where I'm coming from? The, the, the total game time gets increased. And that might, I'm not going to say it's going to put people off, obviously not, because it's like, it's such a well-watched, but that's one of the biggest issues people have with the NFL, is it just takes too long. Even yeah. though it's only an hour game time, it's not an hour, it's three hours. You're going to watch people stop, start. And and as for the, like, obviously it's got to stay. And I think it's good because, as I said, it gets different types of players in. Because if you get rid of the scrums, you can just play, like, as you said, Duhan by the Mervai, it's eight, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Like, rugby is also already a sport, right? Yeah, but, yeah. exactly. So like, it's like, what's the, like? There's no point in in having props. You can just play like four wingers, like. Um, so, I think that's the change. I, the stop clock thing isn't a really good debate. I, I, I don't know where what way Jack's going to go, but I think if it stops the clock, that if it keeps the clock going, people get a rest. Surely you get better bursts of play because they're more energized and. If that makes sense, like they're not as knackered if the game's running for an extra 30 minutes. That's just like a logical thinking for me. I don't know if that actually is. Like all these guys are super fit, but rugby is so in like high intensity that maybe maybe as a Darcy Graham on the wing is loving a bit of like six seven minutes standing doing nothing while these guys are going up and down. Um, so yeah, that's what that's my take on it, Jack. What about you? Yeah, uh, I mean, <clears throat> I mean, I personally love scrubs, but for the sake of dramatics. The, how easy do you think it is to ref a scrum, Jimbo? And <clears throat> how clear and obvious do you think every penalty decision that comes off the back of it is? Yeah. How many years did I did I scrummage for? It must have been like over ten. And when I watch it, I could flip a coin and I wouldn't know which way a referee's going to go. Like exactly. I mean, like stark art referee. But, uh, but uh, my, actually, my, my, just yeah, I was yeah, just, isn't that the biggest issue with, with scrums? Is it's not really used as what James has said as a tactical ploy to make it seven on seven. It's literally used to try and draw a foul so that you can kick it into the corner in their twenty-two or five meters. That's literally what most people use it as a deploy. I mean, I I would even go further and say like I genuinely don't think it's obvious what infringements being created or being done at a, at a scrum at any time. 
because you you see like a scrum that's being dominant but is that because some team hasn't taken the hit or is that because they've gone too early and what is like minimum seconds is completely down to interpretation i think <clears throat> i'm going to argue that it hinders the game because a penalty in the grand scheme of things in this time in rugby is such a massive advantage and for a lot of teams particularly wales when they're playing against 15 men is the only way they can get down the field so why would you have a, something that generates a lottery and potentially you know it could be a game-winning penalty or you know a push someone downfield for a game-winning try or even like you know you know a wrong call stopping game-winning incident uh, as being a, such a common restart in the game why not make it you know just like a, a tap and go for instance you know it, it's the idea of it is to, supposed to restart the ball with the favor of the team that um you know have got the ball in the first place or for instance the team you've who've knocked knocked on so why wouldn't you just restart with a tap and go or any other restart it's just what, more what, exciting i think yeah. for the general fan who can't see you know, 40 meters in front of them to have a, a a great bird's eye view of what's going on. Yeah, Jim has just left us, but we'll he's continue. Left. To he's left. He's, he's, he's had enough of this. Um, well, I mean, we'll continue to start. Do you not think there's an issue with um, how much scrums reset? Um, for instance, you can literally have. Oh, James joined us again. I thought. Did you hear Jack's take that much, James? Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I, as I was just saying, that, do, you, do you think there's a bigger issue in how much a scrum is being reset, how many times it gets reset? And it should be a case of you once maybe you can reset it and that's about it. And after that, make a call, foul, penalty, free kick, whatever, because you still get that aspect. I feel like teams just play for the foul so much. And also the ref, I think the refs, as you say, it's a lottery, right? So it's just like they don't really know which way to point. So like, oh yeah, let's just reset it and go again because I have no idea. Um, I think that's what causes a lot of the time delay because one scrum can be reset like four or five times. And like, like why? Just do it. You can reset it once. You got one lottery reset. After that, your job ref is to make a call, make a call, <laughs> give him a free kick, give him a penalty, whatever. Yeah. Any any thoughts? Yeah, I guess like. Exactly. It's it's hard to know what's what's happening when the, when the referees are making these decisions. So often it's just given to the team that's like on the up and on the ascendancy, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's legal. It's just they're pushing them backwards. Um, I think the the interesting thing that you kind of pointed out was that um, kind of maybe the um, maybe the kind of time it would take would be too long and it would like add up to how long the games take. I guess the thing is rugby's already got a system in place, right? We already stopped the clock for loads of things. Unlike football, we don't do extra time. We stop the clock for uh, kind of penalties, TMO reviews, all that sort of stuff. Um, uh, so I think there's precedent within the game to be able to do it. I think maybe you're right. Maybe it's a kind of, if you were to do this, you'd have to limit how long a scrum could take. And then, how how do you do that? Do you avoid it? Do you say after a certain number of resets, it just becomes a free kick? Uh, but then do you deliberately yeah, lead the reset? Like, that, they? Like, exactly. So I think the problem is people are playing to the system at the moment. It takes too long out of game time. Yeah. I think you have to try and think of a way of incentivizing it to be quicker, which to be fair to World Rugby, they've already kind of tried to do. They've kind of done it this year under the guise of uh, COVID protocols. They tried to bring in some trial rules to say that they they wouldn't do scrum resets and things like that. Um, 
but I don't think anyone's keen to adopt it because it it, w- it would change so much. And that was like that was like just for social distancing. So one well, one thing I was going to ask you guys is one of the things I noticed is like obviously I'm not playing rugby like you guys, but just as a fan, do you think it would make scrums less incentive for teams to go for to waste time? if it was more a 50-50. You know how the ball placement is not 50-50, let's be real. It goes literally diagonal in towards your second row. It doesn't even go to the hooker. Um, so do you think if they started penalising that and say it has to go down the middle, it's a 50-50 call, the only advantage you have is you know when the ball's going in, would that make teams less likely to be like, okay, we can't actually go for like four or five resets here because we might lose the ball? Well, what they changed the law a few years ago. So it used to be that it had to go in straight in the middle. They now kind of are let them put it to their own hookers' feet. It's like the scrum half doesn't have to be lined up in the middle anymore. So World Rugby's kind of gone away from trying to make that. So it's way harder to win against the head than it used to be. Uh, and the, the like number eight can pick it up when it's at the second row's feet rather than their own. So I just think the, the laws have changed away from making it a fair contest. Now the main reason that you go win against the head is because you shove with all eight and don't hook at all. But even then, it's like it's harder to do. I haven't looked at the kind of trends, but I assume that you win less against the head now. Yeah. Um, so I think that yeah. they've gone the other way. Yeah. Any takes, Jack? Before we move on. Yeah, I I think the I think the biggest change I'd like to see, and yeah, before anyone hates all, all the props from the world, hail me. I do enjoy scrums. I think they're they're a great aspect of the game. But I think that the reward for winning a scrum should be limited to a free kick, um, because. I think that's half the reason why they go on for so long is because of the potential reward from a penalty is massive, um, and kind of and like the, these are the decisions that influence games massively. So if you change that to a scrum, then I think the game will be sped up because teams will be like, well, we're not really, you know, making much inroads from this at all. Yeah, no, that that's completely fair. I, I think that's the biggest thing. I think the reward is too high, and you want to watch. As much as the, the forwards love it, like it's not really that exciting watching them go up and down for like seven minutes. Um, you'd much rather watch the ball in the hands of the players, or like you know, like Finn Russell kicking into a corner or stuff like that, rather than just watching these guys bash heads. One of them pulls someone down, then they have a little like bitch fit for a minute, and then they go back in, and, and oh, it's just dull. Um, but no, it's it's a really interesting one. I think we actually had a question like this uh, for the first podcast. We're like, do you think there's still a space for scrums in, in rugby? And I think it's something that's going to continue for a while. As you say, it's quite annoying that um, that they've kind of moved away from making it a fair contest because I think that kind of takes away from it. Um, I think that takes away from what making it more of an like less of an incentive to try and go get scrums, if that makes sense. Um, but no, very interesting and a nice little occasion, but I enjoyed that. Enjoyed that one. Uh, Jack, over to you, sir. And can you please introduce your second debate topic? Yeah, so what I'm debating is that red cards should be um, <clears throat> should not result in someone being simbined for the entire game. Um, and yeah, should be limited as it is in Super Rugby. Um, so for those of you that don't know, um, in the new Super Rugby season down under, um, there's going to be a, a red card is being replaced with the following amendments, where a player will be ejected from the field for 20 minutes. After those 20 minutes, a player can come back on. Oh no, a replacement player cannot come back onto the field, so the team returns to 15 men, but it cannot be the player that did receive the red card. And the judiciary policy of you know a ban will still be in place afterwards. So. I, for one, am arguing this. 
and that this is a good case because in the recent years you've seen a massive increase in the amount of red cards at the world cup um in japan alone there was eight red cards which is more than the last four world cups before it combined as jimbo mentioned earlier there was five red cards at the weekend in the english premiership and there's been 10 pro 14 this year alone what this is doing this is massively impacting the contest of the game you hear around the stadiums all the time that oh when there's a red card the contest is over and that's that's true to an extent because you know you look at the overall record of teams that are winning games when they're going up against teams with red card and it's astronomically in favor i shamefully don't have the numbers but i don't have didn't have that much time to crunch the ball um <laughs> now at this moment in time rugby is going through a huge transition in the way rule and um, the way referees are dictating rules so it used to be that a red card was a huge uh, a serious incident of foul play um and now there's a lot of rugby incidents that i describe them much like the xander fagerson red card for scotland um against wales that are now being interpreted as a red card these uh, you know a few um, a year ago even six months ago xander fagerson's not sent off the field for that and what has happened there now scotland didn't lose the game because of this red card so i'm not just saying that's going to be a bitter scotsman but what it's doing is having a huge impact on the way the game's played anyone who's played rugby before will tell you that it's it's a nightmare playing with a man down you know it normally means that you know either if you take a man off in the scrum then you know you're hugely impacting you know like the 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 personnel you have on the field if you take a man in the back that's a huge amount of space that's being left nigel owens in 2017 that said that a yellow card accounted for seven to ten points on average um (laughs) and whereas some studies suggested that's more like two to three points but the impact of a red card is felt for the rest of the match you're not only seeing the impact of one player's like wrong move you're impacting an entire team for you know what can be a a very debatable incident the fact that you know you've got red cards that are being overturned later suggests that this is unfair that a game is being well that, that a game is being decided upon a decision that is even debatable in the first place um so yeah i guess my point is that it ruins not only the spectacle but while that there's a a process where you've got you know um a process where red cards are just much easier to attain than they've ever been that there should be a limit on how much there should be uh, how much a team should be punished you know they still go through the same banning process that they would um in super uh, like if they got a red card and they were set off for the whole game as they would after 20 minutes and it doesn't ruin the spectacle because 20 minutes is a huge you know amount of time to be a man down for jack yeah, can i just ask for a clarification yes. when kind of headlines talk about like orange card systems is that what just people are calling the diluted red card or is there genuinely a scenario where people are saying we should have three where there's like a yellow orange and red so, th- so that's what i was just gonna that's what that was gonna be my point was because so in hockey there's three cards right and i, I thought the, the issue i have with what you're saying jack is there are some files that deserve you to be down to 14 men and the system that you've said that in the super rugby you're gonna try 20 minutes is sometimes not sufficient enough for instance like the uh, tackle that comes to mind like sunny bill's tackle the lions tour like he deserved red like that he's got to go off for, for the game in my opinion and to give them 20 minutes they he come well new zealand replace him they win the game comfortably if that makes sense it's not it's not enough of a it's not enough of a punishment in my opinion I know there's some tackles like the one we just seen with Ferguson's one, which you could argue that 
that's really harsh for Scotland, especially if you're playing 40, 50 minutes without an extra man, when the foul is a debatable one. It's not a clear and obvious red. Um, so the way where I'm coming from is, for instance, in hockey, you have you have a green card, a yellow card, and a red card. The red card is what a red card is, right? You're off for the game, you're down to 10 men, whatever. The interesting one is not the green card because that's a bit stupid. It's only two minutes off. I don't really see the point in it. <laughs> but the yellow card is the umpire's discretion. So depending on the severity of the foul, it's either five minutes, 10 minutes, or until the umpire thinks the players calm down. So it's a way to make sure that, yeah, it's a, play, it's, it's a way to make sure that if a player has lost their head in the game, and you, rather than sending them off, you give them a yellow, but if they're still like on on the sidelines, like throwing their shit everywhere, they're not coming on even if ten minutes has gone by. So maybe that sort of system might work better in rugby because I feel like to get rid of the red card for the whole game might hinder might hinder teams where, in a sense, that some cars just deserve you to be down. Like some some fouls are just awful and they need to be punished there and then. You should be down to fourteen men, and the ones that are in between, yes, give them a rather. A, 10 minute yellow the umpire can go a ref can go actually this is a 15 minute yellow or a 20 minute yellow like you can you can change the sin bin to the umpire's ref's discretion with a minimum and a maximum value if that makes sense i don't know if that would work in rugby but that's just how it's done in hockey and i thought that would be a much better way because that one for instance would be uh like the figurison one could be a 20 minute yellow and you'd be probably like fair enough yeah okay i can kind of see that um but a red obviously just is it wasn't a red like it, it was in between an orange card as you say so i don't know what you make of that kind of thing well i would say that wales won the game followed with their 20 minutes that well in the 20 minutes that followed sander fagerson's card wales won the game they got all the they got their final points which meant that they got to that 25 mark and won the game so i think <clears throat> that's a good case for why you know 20 minutes is a huge impact on a game you know it's not just the the 20 minutes but like it's not just the fact that you return to 50 men on the field but you've got a, you know let's if you include subs for that period of time you've still got you know 10 guys who've had to you know play like and cover more ground than they would have needed to if there was 15 men on the field my problem is that you know well i still i just think it impacts the game massively to have a red card for that whole time you know if you have you know subs in rugby tend to only be on the field for like 25 minutes right so like you know having 20 minutes if someone gets sent off the vast the high chances either it's going to be a starting player who you'd want to keep on for as long as possible or it's going to be a substitute who's who's probably going to not return to the field because that's the end of the game um i i just think that you know it's a really good way to, you know, yeah, Jim, what's your point? Oh, we can't hear you. I'm just going to follow up with what you were saying. Um, really, I think against what you just said, Jasm, I don't think 20 minutes is suddenly going to like massively change the incentives that you're going to have someone running in in the first five minutes, punching someone in the head. I think 20 minutes is a big proportion of the game that, um, should be considered as a bigger punishment than a than a sin binning and ultimately you're still saying that the player won't come back on the field right so it's an individual punishment they'll still have to get cited they'll still face bans it just stops punishing the team as much so it'll be interesting to see how the trial goes but i think it's 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 kind of a no-brainer brainer trying it particularly as with the kind of background that you said like red cards are changing in their frequency because they're trying to educate the players to stop doing these safety related issues rather than it just being a kind of an aggression related issue before. Yeah. 
yeah, I mean, I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's something that's going to obviously needs to be trialed and stuff. And I, uh, maybe there are a lot of red cards, but maybe it's a case of, for instance, like Jack and football, where you need to punish something harshly before it gets, so players get the message, if that makes sense. So, um, if you're trying to get a point across, for instance, with, I remember in the Premier League, they tried this, you know, players used to hold on in the box from corners and stuff and started giving really cheap penalties that we thought were cheap penalties. But now you don't really see that as much anymore because players are going, okay, I actually can't do this because it will result in a penalty. Um, so maybe from that point of view, maybe there's a spike just now because they're clamping down on things like this for player safety, for head-to-head impacts and everything like this. And we've seen it in the NFL as well, where players have been got, getting ejected and stuff for head-to-head contact, which four or five years ago would have been absolutely like a perfect hit. Um, and it's only when you start doing this that it makes the game safer and the red cards numbers go back down and plateau, um, if that makes sense. If only we had some really solid analytical data understanding head impacts. And the <laughs> yeah, imagine if some guy was like a PhD on that. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, blame COVID for not letting me work on that. Um, but yeah, it's an interesting one. Any final comments from you guys regarding this? Because we have been chatting for a while, so I do need to wrap this up. No, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> I'm exhausted. Yeah. No, it's been a pleasure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It has been a pleasure. Honestly, I loved chatting rugby union with you guys. Um, so from this Thursday for everyone listening, actually Friday, uh, myself and my NFL and uh, football expert Ed King will be giving everyone 15 to 20 minute mini podcasts every week on uh, draft prospects so it won't be deep it won't be a deep dive like if you want to listen to that you can go to like the actual nfl guys in america but we'll give you a more basic view of what we think what to look out for what players are looking good for each position group so definitely tune in for that every week on a friday 20 minutes on different position groups so this week it's quarterback so we'll look at the top five six prospects and see what we have to say about them but that is all for this podcast so thanks again jack and james and I can't wait for Scotland to bottle another few games and we'll be back here with two wins, fourth place, as always. Um, And that is the end of the podcast. Thank you very much. 